Hi there, this is Adam Wood with the Neighborhood Church, and I'm glad that you've tuned in to this podcast. This past Saturday, TNC hosted an outdoor worship gathering that was a blast. It was so good to connect with God and to reconnect with one another. We sang together, we uh, celebrated communion together. We also had a family pumpkin painting party after our gathering that we had tables spread out and played games, had prizes. It was a wonderful time to celebrate and worship together. However, we did not record our sermon from that evening. So what I wanted to do, dear people, was continue on in our series in the book of Acts by re-recording a summary message of what we shared this past weekend. We have been looking at the book of Acts, which is the story of all that Jesus continued to do through his people as the good news of Jesus spread to everyone everywhere. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, traces that movement of the gospel. However, in Acts chapter 6, we experience a kink in the hose. It's as if what was moving so powerfully and so freely is threatened to get bottled up because of a seemingly insignificant problem. I said seemingly because it's one of those little problems that if left unchecked can become a massive problem. So what happens in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 to 7 is that seven servants are chosen to get this ministry moving so that the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, would continue to move out to everyone everywhere. However, these servants were more than just servers. They were servant leaders. These seven were the doers who were called to get things done, to get ministry moving. Because what this church learns is that it takes all of us. You see, before we get into our text, before we get into what does this look like for your life, I need you to understand these three things. First, God gives all of us gifts. When you say yes to Jesus as Lord and follow Him in this life, you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you receive spiritual gifts used to build up the church. So the first thing we've got to understand that the New Testament teaches is that God gives all of us gifts. Second, God calls all of us to service, to ministry. God calls all of us to serve others, to build up the community. Third, all of us who are gifted and called may serve different roles. That's why in the New Testament they said, we're all the same body, but just like the human body, there's many different parts. So, understand that God gives all of us, that means you and I, gifts. Then God calls all of us, that means you and I, to ministry and service. And third, we all have different roles. Same body, many parts. So as we read this story in Acts chapter 6, you'll see the prototype of what's become known as the deacon ministry. You also see in churches like ours, pastors slash elders. 
you may leave this message saying to yourself, well, I'm not sure I'm called to be a deacon or a pastor, but I want you to know that God has gifted you, He's called you to service, and there's one body with many different roles. So I want to leave you with two vital questions for you and your life by the time all is said and done here. So stick with me, even if you don't feel like you're a deacon or a pastor, I've got two vital questions for you because it takes all of us to get ministry moving. Without further ado, let's see how they got ministry moving again in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. I hope you're there with me. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, by the way, the twelve would be the eleven disciples of Jesus, plus one that replaced Judas that we saw in Acts chapter 1. These were the sent ones, the witnesses, bringing good news to everyone everywhere. All right, verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Hey, let's pause there real quick. Because some of you might be wondering, Well, ouch, dude, that kind of seems snotty or pretentious. But understand that this is a question of functionality, not hierarchy. It's not that waiting tables and meeting needs and serving widows was beneath them. Far from it. Jesus regularly interacted with those in need. They learned it from the source. We need to be amongst the marginalized, the desperate, the needy. So it's not a matter of hierarchy, it's a matter of functionality. Already the twelve, the apostles, had discerned their role to be one of preaching and teaching and witnessing to the gospel. So when this kink in the hose of ministry happened, they said, man, we have got to delegate. We've got to get other people up serving. Same body, many roles. It's not hierarchy, it's functionality. You with me there? Let's see what they do, picking it back up in verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Huh, pause there real quick. It seems like they had already discerned that their role matters more about their Word, both the Word of God, the Word of the Gospel, and prayer and that these others will primarily be serving in their role by meeting needs. Hold on to that. We'll get there in a moment. Verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip. Pause there. Stephen and Philip. Boy, we're going to have some wild stories about them in the chapters ahead. Really powerful, really faithful dudes. But first, let's continue back with our list. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now watch what happens, verse 7. 
So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, wait, priests, became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. One of my favorite things about being a pastor is doing weddings. I love to do weddings. I love to meet with couples and to talk with them about their life together and marriage and conflict resolution and all those kinds of things as you approach your wedding date. I also love to plan ceremonies with couples. I love to hear how their own story and their own uh, ideas can get shaped into a service that both honors the Christian tradition before them and celebrates their unique story as a couple. I love to sit with couples, to plan ceremonies, and of course, I love to perform weddings. It's so much fun to be a part of that special day. It's an honor that I have just not taken for granted. Also, I love to dance at weddings. You all can attest to that if you've been to one of our weddings, but that's for another time and place. Now, there is a salacious rumor that has gone around that I myself was a <clears throat> groomzilla. I was a groomzilla, so some people say, wink, wink, my wife, Amy. Because ten and a half years ago, when it was time to plan our own ceremony, I had a binder. And I had every fine detail. And I had everything laid out just so. And at the rehearsal, even though we were all gathered together, family and friends, I was stomping my feet and tapping my binder to make sure that everybody knew where they needed to be and what they needed to do. Because doggone it, maybe I was a groomzilla, okay? Maybe I was. I'll admit it. I confess it. But here's the deal. These symbols, this ceremony mattered. And maybe I let it matter a little too much because it's a day to celebrate, right? Well, one of the things I love in these ceremonies and one of the things that we had planned was a unity ceremony. You guys know what that is. The unity candle is probably how you've seen it most. You have the groom's parents walk down and they light one candle on one side. And then followed by the bride's parents as they walk down and light a separate candle on the other side. So the ceremony begins and the message is preached and the vows are exchanged. And toward the end, the unity ceremony happens and the bride and the groom walk over to those candles and the groom takes one from that side where his parents lit. And then the bride takes the other from her side where her parents lit. And they take those two candles and what do they do? You know, they light the one candle in the middle. Well, we had planned to use sand. I've done weddings where they've used plants. I've even braided different cords. However you do it, the symbol is the same. And we used sand. You mix a little sand there, mix a little sand there. But it's the ceremony that represents these two families. Out of these come a new family. And they're united as one. I love weddings. I love the ceremonies. I love the symbolism. And so what if I'm a groomzilla? The symbolism is powerful, isn't it? In so many ways, what we see in the first few chapters of Acts is the Holy Spirit 
turning a diverse community into a kingdom family. And in Acts chapter 6, we have one candle that's the Hellenistic Jews. And on another candle, we have the Hebraic Jews. And remember that as they're knit together, doing this life of Jesus together for the first time in history in Mass with the Holy Spirit, remember that these are still real people that come from real cultural backgrounds with real baggage and real tension, and they're also experiencing real transformation in the midst. They're still in process too. So we have these two groups, these two candles becoming one. And of course, there's going to be some sparks before it burns brightly into a flame. So what's happening here is this functional life together problem of these two groups coming together and it's not without a little bit of conflict. Now, earlier I mentioned that this is a seemingly small thing, but it's really not because if left unchecked, the cracks will continue to widen. Because here's the thing. This is the story of the gospel going to everyone everywhere. So the more groups, the more nations, the more people groups that get brought in, if we don't get this right, oh man, we're going to have a terrible fire on our hands. Speaking of weddings and working with couples, we talk about how conflict is anything that requires a resolution. Sometimes it's not helpful to say, tell me about your fights, right? It's more apt to say a conflict because a conflict could involve fighting, but a conflict is anything that requires a resolution. And make no mistake, this required a resolution. Because if they didn't get this squared away, if they didn't get this kink undone, this ministry would get cut off and the movement would fail. So, God is still in their midst. The Holy Spirit has united this diverse community into a kingdom family. And the two groups at issue here, starting to form this teeniest of cracks, is the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Similar shades of the same, ethnically and religiously, but what we can deduce, and no one quite knows for sure, is that the Hellenistic Jews were probably Greek-speaking from further out in the Mediterranean region that had come to Jerusalem, and they carried with them their own cultural and linguistic distinctions. However, the Hebraic Jews, we can infer, would be those that grew up and were raised around and stayed near Jerusalem, Galilee, Judea. They would have spoken perhaps Aramaic, the spoken language that Jesus spoke of the Hebrew people in that time period. So what's fascinating is this crack emerges with similar people groups that perhaps only had the slightest cultural distinctions. But isn't it true that in our world we can see how we use our differences to define us and divide us more than our similarities and unity. So it's really a significant problem that goes beyond some widows being overlooked. They're carried with it this crack in the foundation that threatened to stop the movement. 
So we had some people inferring that these widows over here were probably getting less food, less care, less attention. And the fact is that any widow in that time needed a lot of help. They couldn't just go get a job at Walmart. And these widows, Hebraic or Hellenistic, were probably coming to rely on this new kingdom community because perhaps their allegiance to Jesus had put their own blood family relationships in jeopardy. And so they needed this community. They needed their help. So a problem is introduced. A crack is introduced. And then the apostles said, look, let's address it. A conflict is anything that requires resolution. And here's the issue. We can't do it all. So they say, choose seven men among you. Because this is an issue of functionality, not hierarchy. So they find these servant leaders to become meters of needs. Is meters a word? Sure, let's make it. They're the doers who are going to get things done. Earlier I said that uh, the apostles had already discerned this idea that they ministered primarily with their words in prayer and preaching. And then I would say in our church that deacons primarily minister with their hands, meeting needs, doing the stuff of ministry, meeting functional needs. But pause here because Stephen and Philip, who are to become the prototype for the deacon ministry in Acts chapter 6, they're going to go about preaching boldly in the next few chapters. They're going to be spreading the good news. So really that distinction is only helpful to a point. If you're a deacon, or if you're not a deacon, you can still serve because we're all gifted, we're all called to service, same body, many roles. So even those functional distinctions does not absolve us from preaching good news. Even though the pastors tend to preach and pray more, and the deacons tend to do and serve more. Let me illustrate this further. Last year, I was privileged to uh, attend an ordination service for one of our dear friends and colleagues in ministry who was seeking ordination in an Anglican diocese called the Church for the Sake of Others, which is an amazing name. It's a new diocese in the Anglican Church in North America. And so their hub is here in North Texas, even though their churches are all over. And I'll never forget when their presiding bishop, Todd Hunter, was giving some remarks at this ordination. He was addressing these new deacon candidates. And he said this, You will never outgrow this vocation of servant leadership. That day he was ordaining deacons who were the servant leaders in the church, then and now, the doers, the servers, the meters of needs, right? But he said, you will never outgrow this vocation. You may become a priest, a bishop, and who knows what else, but you will never outgrow this vocation. And of course, he's right, isn't he? When Jesus was on his way to the cross, in that upper room, before the Last Supper, before his parting words to a despondent and distressed disciples, he knelt down and washed their feet. He showed them that the servant is the vocation 
of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So whether you're a deacon, pastor, bishop, or a teacher, an electrician, fill in the blank, we are all gifted and all called to service. How that looks is yet to be seen, but know that we'll never outgrow that vocation because it was modeled for us by Jesus himself. Whoever would be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. If that was good enough for his followers then, surely it's good enough for his followers now. That's why when the neighborhood church ordained seven deacons, we gave them a small towel to remind them that this is a ministry of service that was begun and originated and empowered and enabled by Jesus himself. And what's powerful is that these seven men, and it was men in that case, although you'll see later when Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy, the pronouns are not exactly specifically masculine. There's enough room there for, I believe, it to be open for men and women. In fact, Paul will elsewhere in Romans label women as deacons. There's a strong history and a strong textual argument for men and women serving as deacons. And in fact, in our church, we have a core conviction that says these roles are related to giftedness and calling and not just gender. But that could be another sermon for another time. It's enough to know now that these seven men, it's not just what they did that mattered. It's who they were. Later uh, in 1 Timothy, he'll list more characteristics. But did you notice what he said in Acts chapter 6? Choose these who are what? who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. You see, it's not just who, excuse me, it's not just what they do that matters, it's who they are. I think the application here is that being must always precede doing. Because if you don't get your identity right, if you don't get it lockstep that I am a follower of Jesus, and if Jesus was a servant of all, then I want to follow in his footsteps. I'm going to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. I want to walk in step with the Spirit, to be full of the Spirit, to trust and lean not on my own understanding, but to be filled with his wisdom. You see, when you get that right, then surely serving and meeting needs will be done in a way that honors God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Being must precede doing because how matters. How we do what we do matters to a watching world. And remember, the conflict arose because they were watching. That group was watching how they treated my people, and they were being slighted. How you do what you do matters to a watching world. How you post what you post in a politically divided world matters when they're watching. There is a way in which we must get our being, our identity secure, and it must precede our doing. So, these seven were chosen, but they were also ordained. Of course, that word is not there in the text, but it's implicit. It's an Old Testament practice in which one is called from above, so to speak, called from God, 
but then affirmed below, so to speak, affirmed by the community. And then what they're done is set apart for ministry. That's what ordination is. You're called from above. God has called you to this role, this service, and then you're affirmed below. The community says, yes, we honor this. We recognize this. We've tested you. We've seen this evidenced in your life. We know you're full of the spirit and wisdom. We know that your being is set. It's settled on who you are in Christ. We see that. It's called above, affirmed below. And so then what we do is we come together. We lay hands and pray as a symbol of setting apart and sending out for a particular vocation and mission. That's ordination. It has its ancient practices and examples in the Old Testament, and it, of course, has become codified in the different Christian traditions these many years later. What we see is the prototype of the deacon ministry right here in Acts chapter 6. They're servers who are servant leaders. It didn't just matter what they did, it mattered who they are. Because what they did was they resolved this conflict They squashed this divisive issue, which was so vital to get this ministry moving because it wouldn't be the last time that other people groups come knocking on the doors that God is breaking down in his family. See, there are no walls in the family of God. When the Holy Spirit is on the move, turning a diverse community into a kingdom family, This necessarily involves the breaking down of barriers where there's no longer Hellenistic and Hebraic. There's only us. There's no longer black and white, not in a way that erases those distinctions to be celebrated, but in a way that tears down that which seeks to divide. That's why I think Paul can say in Galatians, there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male or female. Those divisions that we love to prop up, to separate us out, God loves to knock down. It doesn't mean that we form this kind of nebulous society where we're quote-unquote colorblind or that these things don't matter. They just don't matter in the way that we try to make them matter. It's no longer who's better. There is no hierarchy. Same body, many roles. Those things that used to divide us are to be done away with in the kingdom of God when the Holy Spirit knits us together into a kingdom family. John, St. John, will see later in his vision in the Revelation of many tribes, tongues, still in kingdom come, honoring their distinctions, but never in a way that divides them around the throne and presence of God. It's not that these things don't matter, it's that they don't matter when it comes to division. Because to be a servant of all, we need to get over that so that we might truly love and serve all people. That we might truly reach everyone, everywhere. So once that conflict gets squashed by some doers getting ministry moving, what we see in verse 7 is the hose getting unkinked. So the word of God spread. Isn't it beautiful when God's people are able to serve the neediest, to serve 
the whole mission to put the needs of others ahead of and alongside their own, to work for something beyond themselves, to work for something bigger than themselves, to fire on all cylinders so that the word of God might spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and even priests the keepers of the status quo, the keepers of kosher that kept you over there at that restaurant and me over there at that restaurant. God is going to begin to move beyond all of those distinctions so that truly everyone everywhere might come to know a new king in a new family. So, where does that leave us? What of these two questions that I hinted at earlier Maybe you're not a deacon, maybe you're not a pastor, but you've been gifted, you've been called, and we're the same body, many parts. So here's the questions. Would you ask, God, who are you calling me to be? Who are you calling me to be? Where are those places that are out of step? Where could I rely more heavily on your spirit and your wisdom? Who are you calling me to be? Where have I been finding my identity elsewhere? Where have I gone searching that is not rooted in you? Second question. God, what have you called me to do? God, what have you called me to do? That may be something in this season... That may be a vocation that sets you on a journey of a lifetime. It may be for this afternoon. God, what have you called me to do? But make no mistake, the order of these questions matters. God, who have you called me to be? God, what have you called me to do? If we all would discern these questions... Listen to the voice of God. Follow the leading of the Spirit. Model our lives on the example and power of Jesus. Surely, we might see our own version of chapter 6, verses 7 in our own life. So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples increased rapidly. What would that look like? For us. Now, receive this benediction and go to ask and to listen and to serve. You will never outgrow that ministry of service. Here's our benediction You are loved. Love is the way. When you love God, you love others. So give yourself to God by serving others. May you be who God is calling you to be. May you do what God is calling you to do in our church and neighborhood. Whatever shape that takes, remember that in God's love there is forgiveness, healing, and reconciliation. Go in peace.